Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Happy New Year. It's 2023. I hope you had a good holiday. I appreciate you listening. Today on the program, my guest is Dorda Norris, author of A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea Coast. I mean, if, if you want to fall in love with this coastline, you should probably come in the summer just to see uh, how the light is amazing. I mean, it's there are fjords just behind the dunes, so it's like the light is being mirrored by so much water. So the light is so high and it's light around the day and you can sleep on the beach and you can hike there. And it, so if you want to fall in love, come when it's uh, kind. <laughs> come when it's kind to you. And then for, I mean, we have, a lot of tourists who, who stick around all year long because they have grown to love when it's rough as well and who also want to experience the storms because when the hurricanes come in that is quite an experience in itself because it's like it's screaming down in your face it's like a roar and you feel so little and tiny and minuscule and it's like the galaxies are screaming at you. Okay, that was Dorda Norris. Her new book, A Line in the World, is available now in the United States of America from Grey Wolf Press in a beautiful translation by Caroline Waite. A Line in the World is Dorda Norris's first book-length work of nonfiction. It is a collection of 14 essays that chronicle a year that she spent in her homeland, her home country of Denmark, and in particular in her home territory out in the countryside, traveling along the remote North Sea coast. This is a beautiful book. 
It is Dordanor's delving into her past, her personal history in this region, the history of the region itself, the people who live there. And it's a unique opportunity for readers in English because this is one of the first books in English that really takes you into this part of the world. And the writing is absolutely gorgeous. It makes you want to go there. I'll tell you that. Dordanors is able to bring Denmark, its culture, its people, its landscape vividly to life. And the critical acclaim for this book has been nearly unanimous for good reason. I had a really great time catching up with Dordanors. This is her second time on the Other People Show. She first appeared back in August of 2016 in, I believe, episode 425. And uh, this would have been back when we were living in our old house and I was recording in that filthy garage. (laughs) It was that era of the podcast. And I remember that day. It was hot. I believe it was hot. And Dorda was fresh off of an airplane. She had just landed in Los Angeles, arrived at my house, and I had to take her back into this filthy garage. And there were like wasps buzzing around. And uh, it was, you know, it was very warm. (laughs) So this time, in this episode, we recorded remotely, which in a way feels kind of fitting because of the nature of this book. Dorda was at home in Denmark on the North Sea coast in the dead of winter, and I was here in my new garage in Los Angeles, the one without wasps. And I don't know, it worked great. Very excited to share this talk with Dorda Norris. That is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Today's episode is brought to you by Vintage Books, home to bold new voices that help us understand the current moment we live in. Vintage Books is proud to offer a book called Invasion by Luke Harding, number one New York Times bestselling author of Collusion and The Snowden Files. Bill Browder, New York Times bestselling author of Red Notice, calls Invasion, quote, the definitive story of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is Luke Harding's personal frontline reporting on Russia's harrowing invasion of Ukraine, the biggest news event of 2022, possibly 2023 and beyond, certainly an inflection point in international politics. And this is your opportunity to learn all about it from somebody who was there. That's Invasion by Luke Harding, available from Vintage. Today's episode is also brought to you by William Morrow, publisher of the novel The Thing in the Snow by Sean Adams. The Thing in the Snow is a very thought-provoking and wryly funny novel that is equal parts deadpan satire and psychological thriller. It reads like a Beckett play, and it keeps you turning the pages. I'm reading it right now, and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm about 100 pages in. I'm a little creeped out. I'm a little on the edge of my seat, but I'm also laughing. It's hard to predict, and I like that feeling because, uh, you know, it beats, it beats predictability. I like when I don't know what's going to happen in a book. Again, this is a novel. It's called The Thing in the Snow. It's by Sean Adams. It's available now from William Morrow. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive, more than 800 episodes and counting, is all available to you, the listener, for free. So I depend on listeners to support the show. 
to keep the paywalls away. So if you like this show, if you listen regularly, if you want to support it, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. That's it. Over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff, a book club subscription. Uh, you can get gear, t-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, that sort of stuff over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. The other people podcast has its own weekly newsletter. I do a weekly email newsletter once a week. It's free. Sign up for that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. If you want to read it, you can do that. It came out in May of 2022. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. One more time, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. The Other People podcast is on YouTube. It has its own YouTube channel. You can watch my conversation with Dorda Norris. You can watch it like a TV show. I'm posting video now. The entire archive of this show is up on YouTube. And over the past couple of months, I've started doing video. So previously, the episodes would go up on YouTube and it would be audio only. Now you can watch the full conversations in 1080p, whatever that means. The Other People podcast is also now on TikTok. I've been posting highlights from the interviews on TikTok. I don't know how to use TikTok. I'm just posting clips. I'm not talking to my phone the way that I think people do. You know how you talk to your phone and you talk to your people? I'm not good at that. I, I feel weird doing that, I got to say. So I'm doing it my way. I'm just posting clips on TikTok so you can like watch the highlights. And uh, I think the handle on TikTok is at otherppl.podcast. So if you're a TikTok person, follow the show on TikTok. Otherwise, if you want to write to me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Make suggestions. Tell me a story. Whatever you want. Letters at otherppl.com. My guest today is Dorda Norris. She is the author of story collections entitled Wild Swims and Karate Chop. She is also the author of four novels, including Mirror Shoulder Signal, which was a finalist for the Man Booker Prize, and a couple of novellas collected in a book entitled So Much for That Winter. Her new book, A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea Coast, is available now from Grey Wolf Press, translated by Caroline Waite. I am so pleased to have Dorda Norris back on this show. We had a great time. You're going to hear it right now. Here she is, folks. This is Dorda Norris. The entire process of writing does change the material as you go along. I was writing on a novel when a photographer approached me and asked me if I was, would like to write texts for his uh, photography. And uh, I said no three times in a row. I didn't want to do that. I was going to write this novel. But then I thought it would be lovely to go into the landscape that I actually live in, but I haven't spent much time in because when I moved here, I had an international breakthrough in my writing. So I spent a lot of time in airports and in transit. So I thought maybe it's uh, maybe it would be a good idea to to stop for a while and 
take the car and drive into the place where I actually live. Uh, so I said yes, and I decided to spend one year doing it. I checked out what, what had already been written about this landscape, and it was very old, what had been written, and it had been written by men. And, and a lot of it was written with a certain kind of intellectual and powerful distance. So I kind of knew that I had to donate myself to the writing. And when you do that, you know that you're going to be influenced by where you go and that the writing is going to change you and change the places that you go. So what I found more than anything was that if you move around in a landscape that you know and have known your entire life, uh, that is also moving around in memory. So memories started coming back. Uh, the strangest places, I think in the book I describe, I was in a lighthouse and suddenly from the lighthouse, I was looking down at a harbor and I hadn't been thinking about that harbor since 1982. But suddenly I remember that my brother once got lost or he walked off away from a car while we were waiting in line to go on a ferry. And that is not a traumatic memory. It's just one of the thousands and thousands and thousands of memories that we all store and that are stored in, in, a, in geography, you could say, or in a place. So this is also, I found, the reason why people are reluctant to go back to the school where they were bullied because the memories are there. And that is also why uh, the survivors of Holocaust don't run back to Auschwitz. That's because they are stored there. There they cannot escape these things. And on a much less traumatic uh, level, that is also a landscape. A landscape will have you remember and tell your own story in a new and a different way. So I decided to be open to that fact and uh, allow that to happen because I knew that that is what happens to all people who go into that landscape. They will have memories. So yes, it did change how I perceived the landscape. It also made my connection to it a lot stronger. I really feel connected. I mean, I always felt connected to this landscape as if it was an old family member, but now I feel like I truly know that old fam family member. I mean, it's that kind of difference, you could say. Okay. So before we get any further, because I think the bulk of my listenership is is going to be stateside or in Canada or Australia or whatever, I want to make sure people know what landscape it, we're talking about. <laughs> Good uh, idea. So is it is it Jutland? Like, mm -hmm. how, would, how do we define this? And can you kind of put people in the place geographically? Yeah, Damagas uh, is connected uh, with Germany on our southern Jotland border. So Jotland is what is in Denmark is called the mainland because it is the biggest part of Denmark. It's a peninsula that rises above Germany. And uh, there are 500 kilometers of sandy, crazy west coast there. Uh, that is the North Sea coast that goes all the way up to the tip of that peninsula. And the west side of that peninsula called Jotland is very raw, very bleak and and beautiful. Uh, if, you, if you know what a Scottish landscape looked like, it, it's not just without the mountains. It's raw and windy and beautiful. And the eastern side of that peninsula is much like the British landscape, like beautiful and little houses and you know because the wind doesn't come 
in from that side. So it's like uh, the Garden of Eden, right? And then on the other side of that coast is really, really raw. And where do you live? I live on the West Coast. I live on the Central West Coast, on the North Sea Coast. And uh, then, of course, Denmark, the rest of Denmark is islands, bigger and smaller islands. And our capital, Copenhagen, is on the biggest of this, these islands, far east, almost in Sweden. So that's Denmark to you. So we are as far west as we can come in Denmark. And the coastline I decided to uh, describe in this book goes from a place called Skane, at the Strait of Skane, and then I decided to follow it way down past Germany and into Holland, where the Wadden Sea starts. So um, that's about a thousand kilometers of uh, coastline that is not very known to the world because it's it's not like uh, your your beaches in California, right? It's uh, it, it's bleak, it's cold much of the uh, much of the year, and then in the summer it's like a fairy tale uh, of beauty. But then it's not a landscape for everyone. Uh, well, because I, I, but no, but see, listen, listen. This is what I loved about the book. A couple things I will say, or actually three things that I have to get off my chest in the early going. First of all. A lovely translation by Caroline mm-hmm. Waite. She did a wonderful job. I feel she like you did. could have written this in English. Your English is so strong, you, you, but you have a translator working with you. Yeah, uh, yes, because when it's fiction and literature, I want somebody who knows uh, English uh, from the get-go and to the marrow bone. But I've, I, we worked together because there is also dialect in this, and and it was. And I always think it's fun to have the translation go back and forth. But it, it's, she did a great job on this, so I'm truly grateful for that. Yeah, and I want to read. I'm I'm going to read if if I may. Yeah, uh, I want to read one like passage to give uh, listeners an early taste of of the quality of the prose in this book and the translation. And uh, you write the power of place. You came here once with all you had, left it, and traveled on. And so it is filled with fragments of memory. The flicker, the fragments. They rise like dust in long, unaired rooms. In these rooms, I move abruptly, unexpectedly. My movements make the particles rise. They dance in the light, my place-bound memories. Only for a moment, etched briefly in my mind. Most of them, never to be grasped again. That's kind of what we were just talking about mm-hmm, with regard definitely. to the memory, but j- just like lovely imagery and a way to bring uh, a subtlety of our lived psychological experience to life. So there's that. Uh, and then the other thing that I want to say, as somebody who has spent minimal time in Denmark, I have visited Copenhagen before, uh, but I have not gotten out into the hinterland. I have not gotten out, you know, into the countryside. I love reading books that take me to places I have not been to before, and especially those that do so uh, with this kind of writing, like this vividly. So I appreciate it. On the downside, I have to say that I was constantly putting the book down to Google <laughs> the names <laughs> of places because I was like, I got to see this place. You know, now once I've read this lovely description or, you know, this or this terrifying description of like a, a sea storm or something like I had to look and get a visual frame of reference. So this is definitely one of those books where I was Googling a lot, but it gave me an education in in place and it made me want to go visit Denmark and to get out into the countryside, frankly. 
Yeah, but the Googling while while reading is 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 a very modern thing. I think we all do it. When I write, I I actually sometimes think, should I describe this thing here or will people Google? I mean, it's almost become a part of the writing process that I can dwell on other stuff because people who are uh, extremely preoccupied, not extremely, but who are preoccupied with facts or the reality of things, they will Google anyways. So uh, so it's just because you're cut out like that. I've, I've read other who said, oh, I love reading that book. I was, oh my God, that was really raw. Who didn't Google? And then they went, don't feel the need to go there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and actually that made me feel even more happy because that was was. I mean, we have climate problems. We have all kinds of things. Maybe sometimes we should settle for traveling through books and uh, travel literature that has the aim uh, to turn us into tourists is probably not that. I mean, should we? I think people should go and experience the world that is healthy for us as well. But but of course, think about what it does to the climate as well. But tour- tourism is also a very destructive thing. And I mean, way back when, before we became believers of globalism, we traveled through reading. That's what we did. So I don't have any problem with people go, oh, wow, I really like that book. Don't want to go there. It sounds too bleak for me. It's just like, fine, because you've been there or you've Googled about, you've learned something about it or you you know that this place exists. And and, um, and, uh, I do think that there has been written so much travel literature that is also about having people go the places that they read about. And now... I read somewhere a British uh, critic who said that now writing about a specific place that might not be famous or Copacabana or or something extravaganza, but what place does to us as humans and what place has embedded in itself might be where we're taking literature on these topics now. I remember I read uh, Kapka Kasabova's wonderful book, Borders, which takes place on the border between Bulgaria and Turkey in a very harsh landscape, really brutal. And it was also a book, of course, about politics in that area during the Cold War. Uh, I And I had the exact same experience. Wouldn't like to go there, would probably be a little scared of going there. But boy, I love to read that book because that was like being there. Because you wrote it so well. I want to go. I wanna <laughs> You're kinda, welcome. I, I want to go everywhere. I want to come hang out. I want you to walk me around on these paths that you know so <laughs> I'll well. I'll show I, you around. Yeah, yeah. Scare me a little bit. Maybe like, you know, introduce me to a Valkyrie wave as we're going to uh, discuss. But mm-hmm. uh, the thing that I think I felt as I was reading, in addition to like, like in, enjoying it and being uh, like stimulated and curious about the place is a sense of mournfulness not only for the notion that I might never get there like who knows you know I don't know in my life if I'm going to be able to make the time and Mm -hmm. be able to travel and go see it but like I was just thinking of all the places I'll never see I kind of want to see everywhere but it's not going to happen you know it's not middle age talking because I'm there as well I'm also beginning to sort of pick and choose where will I probably never go when I was young it was like I want to go everywhere 
Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, probably never going to go there. But there, I have to go there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I got. I guess you got to kind of prioritize. But uh, Exactly. It's a beautiful place that you're from. And I think that, as you were saying, there's so much about this book that is visual. And then it also functions as a book that is, I believe I'm using this term correctly, ekphrastic. It's a piece of artwork that's about its own creation. Uh, this is definitely a book that's kind of telling you about its own making as you go. And then it also functions as a kind of autobiography. Uh, as you were saying, you sort of had to donate yourself to the book, donate your life experiences, your memories of th these places that you've been to and the place that you're from and where you were raised. And I, I want to quote you from, I believe, your college dissertation uh, with respect to this autobiographical element of your book where you wrote a line that, that appears in the text and it, you say, quote, it is in the schism that all identity is formed. Is that you or are you quoting the Swedish writer Kirsten Ekman there? I'm trying to recall. No, that's me. But I, 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 no, I wrote my thesis on her many years uh, after I, I, I wrote that sentence. No, that was from my first uh, paper for the literature department at the university. And I remember it because I kept on staring at it and thinking that's 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 a thing, strange thing to write down. What do you mean? And also, it probably isn't like that for all people, but for me it was because I came from this landscape and I, as I told you, felt incredibly rooted to it, and I knew that I had to leave in order to educate myself and form a life for myself, and because that was the deal for kids. Uh, who came from this region. There were no universities. So um, we had to move if we had potentials uh, in that direction. And I had, I felt so homesick. I, I really, I mean, the, the entire idea of spending, living in a city and having to learn that kind of landscape, because a city is also a landscape. And, um, but it was just not my landscape. I didn't know how to read it. So uh, I, I felt very homesick. And the truth is that people who have to move very far to educate themselves or to relocate themselves, they will be, have this sort of, sort of split in their identity that they, came, they come from a place where they do no longer belong. And that goes for in, in a much worse situation for refugees and and people have to move far away for work also, that, um, that there is this kind of divide, that you belong to one place, but you are, you are now also civilized in another culture. It's like you change your culture a little bit, but your roots are somewhere else. And uh, you, you keep on going back and forth between these two states of mind, that's what I find. Even though um, I'm, I'm middle-aged now, it, it still feels like that. But for many years, I wouldn't admit it, uh, mm. that I had my roots somewhere else. Interesting. Yeah. They, they, in, in American English, we have this phrase. I don't know if it's a, a Danish thing, too. You can't go home again. Like it's yeah. never, I guess you can't go home to the same home that you remember, I think is the point. No, but exactly. you, you know, you not only did you go away for college, but you also are very well traveled you've lived abroad and spent time abroad and been all over the place on book tour and everything else. 
Uh, and then you did move back. You lived for a time in Copenhagen. And I think in our first conversation on this show, I, I seem to recall that we talked about that experience and how mm -hmm. you sort of burned out on it and you wanted to go back to this landscape mm -hmm. that you feel rooted to. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience was like to go back after being away? Like, wh what was it like to reacclimate and to relearn it? A quite crazy experience, to be frank, because I uh, I moved back and it was like jumping from a cliff. I remember the first night in the little house I had bought and I had actually bought a house, not rented one, because I wanted myself to do... I wanted to challenge myself so I couldn't run away. So I had bought this house. And I remember sitting in the living room just going, oh my God, what have I done? I'm just <laughs> crying. I thought, oh my God, my, my nest egg, all my savings. What have I done? You're crazy woman. I mean, what are you going to do? But then the landscape in itself made it comfortable for me uh, from the get-go. And then I traveled a lot as well. Culturally, it was more difficult because I had become loud. Living in cities meant that I had become very loud. I spoke out loud. I mean, you could hear me. Wherever I was in the grocery store, you could go, oh, there's the newcomer because I was speaking, you know, my voice right. was just all over the place. And, and also I would say things that small communities wouldn't say out loud. And then on top of that, I was a writer and living from my writing, which means that I will almost say whatever I like <laughs> <laughs> as loud as I want. So, so that was difficult. And it took me a lot of time to figure out how this culture out here on the West Coast, how it works, what I can say and what I can't say and, and why people react like they do. And so it was relearning a lot of things. And then still holding on to the person that I have become, mm -hmm. which is I'm a, I am urbanized and I am intellectual and I am a writer and I am loud, but at the same time accepting and understanding that that is not necessarily the culture of all the people who are around me, which was difficult for me, but has also turned out to be a healthy exercise, I think. I was going to say, um, that yeah. actually sounds healthy, like a nice tension and, you know, trying to navigate the tension between the two. Maybe if you can hit some sort of sweet spot, that might be the place to be, right? Like that's yeah. a nice equilibrium to try to strive for. And mm -hmm. I want to have you read from your book. Yes. A paragraph on page 116, because I want listeners to get more of a sense of the place that you're from, since so many of them will not have a personal frame of reference for it. And I think that this paragraph captures what you were just talking about. I grew up in a silent culture in a desolate parish full of farmers and seamstresses. The grown-ups were taciturn. They liked to keep themselves concealed from the other adults, but no one hid from the eyes of children. In the homes I entered, I saw and heard the mismatch between the spoken and the truth. It was a matter of protection. If the neighbor got wind of what you were hiding, you might not be able to borrow his combine harvester. And the grain had to be harvested. But I longed for the grown-ups to express themselves, and so literature struck me as a miracle when I found it. I set out to learn this deep language, but when I traveled from the big cities to the distant coast, 
Now in the middle of my life as an author, my language was not always unwelcome. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. So you grew up on a farm, right? You refer to it in the book, I believe, as a tumble-down farm. Like, what you, I was trying to, is that, that's not like a technical term. That just means that it was like old and, uh, I was picturing kind of a small kind of ramshackle farm. Is that right? No, it was, it used to be a farm. And then the, my, my parents uh, bought it and turned it into, uh, my father turned the part of the farm that used to be a stable into a carpenter uh, shop. He was a carpenter, a master carpenter, and my uh, my mom taught art, so it was uh, we were a middle class family living in the middle of uh, nowhere outside the little village, and we were newcomers. And the worst thing you could be actually in a in a parish where all people were farmers, were people who thought they were farmers, <laughs> you know, you know, people coming from from the city and trying to. To have a little fun with uh, with the tractor and uh, and build stuff themselves, it was like yeah. I mean, I think they can consider us hippies, which is so far off because they were complete. They were just people from the outside. They were very common middle class uh, people. My parents and you guys, this this farm or this former farm that you grew up on was inland a little bit. But mm-hmm. your actual ancestry traces itself back out to the to the North Sea coast. You come from coastal people. Yeah, I grew up in the middle of Jotland, away from the the coasts. But my mother's family came from southwest, uh, the southwestern part of this coast. My great grandfather was a ship carpenter, and who knows what the rest did. But it was probably uh, something with farming or uh, fishing. And uh, so it was the same thing with my father's family, came from the West. And my grandmother, who was born in 1905, 
which is crazy to think about. She actually told me stories about seeing her first car back in 1909 or something. It's, I mean, imagine then in one person's life, a time span can be like that big. But um, she was from the area that I chose to buy my new house in. So there is a link back to to grandparents and, and people I've lived with. I have great cousins and stuff uh, living out here on this coastline. So, and also my family had a little cabin, a hunting cabin. Uh, the the secret my, place. The secret place that my father bought uh, in 1972. So I came here all, all through my upbringing. I spent time here. And every time we had to go on holiday in Denmark, we would go west. So, uh, or to Norway. Uh, so it was always uh, nature and landscape with my family. That's where we headed. And the secret place, just to give listeners a picture of it, this is a cabin, at least back when you bought it, right? It was like no electricity. Like it was pretty rustic, there, there's right? There's still nothing. <laughs> there's still nothing. Okay, so this is just a, this is a cabin on the coast. And you when you're there, you're sort of camping. It's essentially like a yeah a shelter, but it's, yeah. a, it's very like back to nature. Yeah, it's like a... I mean, it's it's like a time warp thing. I mean, everything is just time stands still there. We don't have electricity. We don't have water. And all the objects of our upbringing and all the things that we brought into that place over time is still there. It's it, it's, it's almost at the point where we're all so scared of moving things around in there because, <laughs> you know, you might mess up the magic. But I've, I've been spending a lot of time there in my entire life. And, and I use it as my office now i go there i drive up the coast and i sit there on good days and i write or or have reading days i sat there yesterday actually reading the great gatsby so um it's it's very much a, a part of my life and has always been uh, isn't it freezing if there's no electricity it was incredibly cold yesterday i swear i'm not going to do that for a long time but i had a meeting up the coast so i thought oh i can take uh, a couple of hours just just reading you know did you have a fire? We have a gas oven. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, as so long as you have works. something. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, just, was, I'm picturing you like bundled there up was, in there. There was frost on the inside of the house, on the windows. I could scrape frost on the inside, off the inside of the windows. So I want to talk about the water because the secret place is positioned at proximity to the coastline. And you grew up, as, you, as you've been saying, vacationing out there that's where your family comes from so much of danish culture and history is tied to the water and it's a tough stretch of ocean <laughs> like this is not the the gentle caribbean you know this is a this is an ocean that takes people you know it's it's like that kind of ocean and there's the viking history that you describe in it uh, can you just talk a little bit about what the water's like? It's super dangerous and it will fool you because when you look at it, it doesn't look necessarily that dangerous because there are no cliffs. There are no islands that you can hide behind and there are no cliffs. And that is the problem. That is why it is one of the most dangerous uh, coastlines in the world. So if you're sailing on the North Sea and a storm comes from the Northwest, it will push you against this coastline and there's nowhere you can hide. You can't sail your ship in behind an island and, and sort of scoot down there until the storm is over. You have to navigate away from the coast. In old days, that was incredible, incredibly difficult. You will be pushed onto the reefs and your boat will hang there 
and uh, the North Sea during a storm is fierce. So uh, it's one of the coastlines in the world where there are most shipwrecks. Tens of thousands of ships have gone down here and um, I mean, so many people have drowned. So in that respect, it is, of course, a very dangerous place. The water isn't hot. It is during the summertime, but in the winter it gets cold. So that's another thing that is, um, is quite rough about it. I got I to interrupt you. I'm imagining that it's cold in the summer too, for me. I, yeah, for maybe you. Maybe for you. For you, you're like, oh, this is fine. I'd be in, like a, I'd be in a full body wetsuit in the peak of July. <laughs> exactly. No, it's, it's warm for Danes. It's okay. Uh, yeah. But not, not for people from, from California or, or Hawaii. Uh, definitely not. So, but also it's placed on a strategic, a strategically very, very important place in Europe. So it's a powerful coastline as well. Denmark, the reason why Denmark is a rich country and will colonize the world, and I'm sorry to the people that we did that to, but that's what people along this coastline did. They colonized the world. Is that if you have to go from the East Sea where Russia is, and Finland and all these, you have to go up above this coastline and down into the North Sea and into the world. So we had control of everything that came in and out there. And then also coastline people have a tendency to be travelers because they can see that there is this big highway of waters and they can just go out there. And they're opportunists. So they go, there must be somebody out there that we can trade with or steal from. That's the Vikings, right? Uh, there must be somebody out there that we can enslave, that we can rob and rape or settle with, you know, colonize. So that's what the Vikings did, which were, were Jutes or, or Norwegians or Swedes, and then um, Angles and the Saxons. And they went over across the North Sea to uh, the British Isles, down into Europe, into Africa, and also to America, because it was a Viking who find Beanland, as we call it, uh, back in the ages. So it's, it's a coastline with incredible international history that nobody really knows about, because there are not that many tourists here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tourists from Germany, of course, but because they travel right. up the coast. But apart from that, it's, it has a very strong international history. And if you... If you would take a DNA test of us, uh, you would find probably that we origin from all corners of this globe. Because although when people stranded and they were half drowned, they would have sometimes they stayed and they married local girls. And an interesting thing is that all the old farms out here on, on the coastline, they always had an extra room. There was one room that was always standing empty for people who stranded. That was just part of living here. It was like, oh, there's another semi-drowned man from who knows where. Put him in the cap and give him some schnapps and, you know, that. In, so, so that is also a very open kind of attitude to what the water is. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got to say, I made me reading your book made me want to read more on Viking history. That's actually fascinating. Like it's how... Super. Yeah, like how skilled they were on the water. What was it? They could they could sail from the North Sea coast to to the UK in like three days. Three days, yeah. 
Like they just they, I, boats. Yeah, they knew what they were doing out <laughs> yeah. on the water for sure. And I want to uh, have you talk about this um, experience in your childhood. It's called you call it a Valkyrie wave. Uh, mm-hmm. This had not this term was new to me. Maybe it shouldn't be. <laughs> No, it's probably because I invented it. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, I thought it was like a thing. I was like, oh. No, no. But a terrifying no, experience. Up. A terrifying experience as a kid. Yes, and um, when I was around 11, we would spend a summer day at the beach. And uh, it was in August, and my mom and dad were walking up and down the beach. And then suddenly, one of these, uh, a wave broke and dragged me into the sea. And at the power, I still remember that power. It was like something grabbed my ankles and just pulled me out. And even though I was walking on the beach and my mom, of course, grabbed me and pulled me back uh, uh, on land. And I remember that I was super fra- afraid of waves after that. I still am. I have, I'm not afraid of them, but I have a big respect of the waves of this coastline. And even on silent and beautiful summer days these very tall waves that occur because of streams or weather way into the north sea they land on the coast suddenly out of the blue and they have this energy in them i after the book came out in denmark and it's been a huge success in denmark and and a lot of readers have contacted me and told me about their own experiences on the coastline and one of these things is the Valkyrie waves that they've tried that themselves with their kids or something or that feeling of walking and then being in control and then the North Sea just wants to remind you that death is here mm-hmm. you know and I'll t- it is I'll tell you it's scary <laughs> I mean as a parent I'm just like oh yeah yeah you know to yeah. think of like the sea just coming in and grabbing one of your kids and then you describe uh shipwrecks you know as you mentioned mm-hmm and then also like the, the sea coming in, what was it, the second great drowning of men back in 1634, mm-hmm. you know, to, to be taken by the ocean is just a terrifying prospect. And to be taken by an ocean that's that cold. <laughs> that, <laughs> you would rather drown in your place? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, take me, I can drown in like Fiji, you know? Like, <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough way to go, man. I'm thinking of like the old days back on one of those boats in the, on the high seas in the North Sea in cold weather in mm-hmm. a bad storm. That's got to be rough. That's not fun. But I will say that everybody who lives close to water will get to know the water. And the reason why we got in that predicament was because we came from the inland and we didn't know how to read that, read that beach. That wouldn't happen to me today. I know where, what's happening. I can read the sea now. And so, so the fear of the water was also ignorance on our part because we could have told ourselves that when waves that high travel in, you should, probably shouldn't have your 11-year-old uh, sit uh, in the breakers right Right. so (laughs) but so you can't blame the ocean it's it's the knowledge you have of the place where you live because it's probably not at all safe to go into the water where you live you have to read that uh, coastline as well and know what it is so every year we have a it's it's a kind of yeah black humor joke that there are a lot of germans drowning every year on this coastline 
And one of the reasons is that Germans is, Germany is landlocked. They're not experienced with water. So when they come here, it's like, oh, there's water. It's like Danes when we go skiing. We break our legs and our necks and because we don't know anything about snow and, and mountains because we don't have mountains here. So you have to be good at or accept that you have to read a landscape. You have to communicate with it. You have to watch it and you have to spend time there. Just sit and it will teach you how you should interact with it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I've gotten better at that living because I'm from a landlocked place in the United States. You know, that's where I was raised. But mm-hmm. I've spent some time in the water, and you do learn how to read the the sea, mm-hmm. and you do sort of learn where to go and where not to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like I, I think that so many of us do this sort of thing intuitively, interacting with the landscape that we're in. Definitely. But one of the things your book brought into higher relief for me is how much learning there is and how much interactivity there is between a person and the landscape, how much information you're receiving day to day and how you learn these things. It becomes second nature, I guess, at a certain point. But, uh, you know, that's definitely a part of being alive that maybe is underrated. And in terms of the book and the journey that you're taking the reader on, we are tracking, and feel free to interject or correct me if I, if I mischaracterize this, but you're taking the reader on a series of trips to various destinations along the North Sea coast. And you're also tracking, I believe, summer to winter. It's a seasonal mm-hmm. trajectory that you're Not on. The entire so you, year, yes. Yeah. With so you're taking, mm-hmm. there's the, uh, the summer solstice. And I think too, the, the way that light functions in Danish culture because of your latitude so far north. So in the summer, the days are extraordinarily long by I think most standards. But then in the winter, as we are now approaching winter solstice, you don't, you only get what, five or six hours of daylight, right? Per day or seven? Yeah, it starts getting light in at eight, nine in the morning. And then at five thirty or three thirty in the afternoon, it just gets dark. I mean, if you're in Stockholm, you'll find at two o'clock in the afternoon, it starts getting dark. So it's uh, so we have many hours of indoor living uh, at this time of year, which is why we uh, created that horrific phenomenon, hygge, you know, you're being cozy and uh, baking and, uh, uh, you know, that whole feel-good atmosphere of uh, indoor life. We're really good at that, dangerously good at that, I would say. Um, I was going to say, it sounds kind of nice. You make some cookies yeah, and yeah. drink some tea. It is. Uh, it, it is. It also has a flip side, but that's an entire different story. But we. But that living inside indoors and and being cold, we throw amazing Christmases. I mean, the Scandi Christmas. I mean, can't beat that uh, because we're we've had so much time to to develop it during those dark hours uh, of the winter. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Uh, what about? What about getting outside in the winter if you don't have mountains? Do you have lots of snow? And not on the not on the North Sea coast because it melts. Because all, all the way during the summer, the North Sea is, is heated up, and it it can, it keeps on containing that heat until March, almost February March, and then we might have some very frosty days in the springtime, but not during the winter. It keeps on melting. We had snow today, though, 
So we go out. We have we handle our business like like normal drive or so it's. But there will be other areas in Denmark where they snow will fall heavy and we'll just stay there. Okay. And in the summertime, which is very much part of the Scandinavian nature, is that we have, as you say, this time of year where the light never goes out in uh, in the middle of June or June 23rd uh, at summer solstice it just never gets dark the sun in Denmark the sun will go down but then it will pop up again like in a couple of hours boop, it's there again and if yeah. you go to Norway and and further up it into Scandinavia it just never goes down so I grew up in the States. I was born in Milwaukee, up in Wisconsin, and my oh, wife is from there. Minnesota. So I grew up in Scandinavian culture and Germanic culture. Very uh, Scandinavian culture, I would say. Yeah. Well, my father or my father-in-law was uh, Swedish, full, fully Swedish, mm-hmm. like by heritage. And so when you were reading that paragraph about the sort of quiet, kind of contained non-expressive nature like especially Mm -hmm. emotionally like all of that stuff is very familiar to me and when you talk about the winters being brutal um that also speaks to me because i grew up in that you know with the the heavy snow and the cold and everything but what i try to emphasize to people who have never experienced it is just how gorgeous these places are in summer like uh, my wife and i went to years ago went to stockholm in the summer just beautiful it's beautiful and everyone's outside the thing i think about people who come from these colder places is that a they know how to make winter good Mm -hmm. typically how to endure it but also how to find the good in it and you know we would get out on the ice when i was a kid and play hockey and we would go cross-country skiing in the snow and i think in minnesota even more so people really know how to deal with winter but then when the weather does get warm and those days are long and all that thaw happens and Mm -hmm. all that green and all the flowers come up it's just gorgeous you appreciate it so much after five months of of darkness and also i mean you make me think about stockholm in the winter um the architecture of stockholm has made these the windows incredibly big to have all the light come in. That's a classical thing. So in the winter, Stockholm is not dark. It's filled with these houses with bright, big, bright windows where the light comes from the inside and out. And it's like these cultures have also mastered that, the beauty of living in darkness, you could say. And um, and in the summertime, I mean, in art history, they would say that melancholy came from... Uh, the Scandinavian countries from or from the Netherlands and north because we have this almost bipolar way of living that we we turn ourselves inwards we we close our doors we go inside in the darkness and I actually love that time of year but that's when I read that's I really love cuddling up reading and studying and then in the summer we become like Italians. We run out, we throw our clothes, or we we beep, you know, we skip like cattle in the in the fresh field. We you know we were, it's it's like we're not the same people. And that's almost we have this bipolar thing, this melanc- melancholic thing in in our culture. I, I want to say. say, I mean, listen, I was in Copenhagen in uh, the late '90s. God, it's my life, you know. 
goes by. But <laughs> I want to say I remember talking to somebody when I was there who was telling me about this very thing, you know, the winters and how people like would go into tanning beds. Maybe this is old day, the old days. Maybe that was in the old anymore. days. <laughs> yeah, like it was like, oh yeah, we spend you know because of the light. It, you, if you spend ten minutes in a that was before bed, people got cancer from it. Uh, okay, okay, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Remember that? I, I I had a friend growing up who's like they had a tanning bed in their house. I was yeah, like, yeah. Eighties and nineties, yeah. Eighties and nineties, but uh, this is your book. To get back to your book, it is a in many ways a road trip book. There are a series mm-hmm. of road trips that you're taking in your Toyota up and down this coast. And I want to get I want to get you to read a section from the book. I'm trying to this was the is it called Bulbjerg? Bulbjerg? Am I how do you pronounce it? It's Bulbia. Bulbia. I knew Bulbia. I was gonna... Yeah. <laughs> listen, you have to, to sound as if you have a potato stuck in there in your mouth <laughs> and it's really a bul- Bulbia. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want yeah, just so uh, listeners can get a sense of uh, the quality of the writing, the visual nature of it, and just to kind of go along with you for an extended passage on your travels. And maybe you could preface uh, the read by just talking about Bulbjörg and like this section of the book and what you were up to. Yeah, uh, Bulbia is is actually a cliff. It's a limestone cliff, and we don't have cliffs on this uh, coastline at all. It's sandy, completely sandy. But at Bulbia, there is... Uh, some limestone and bird cliffs there. So um, I went there and what I saw was that there are a lot of paths there, man-made paths, also paths made by by animals. And it made me think about what memory is and how we um, find our way in a landscape and in our own brains. So, um, and also it's a story about how I, when I went there, I suddenly remember the night uh, where my um, where my my father's brother was killed in a car accident and it's not like i have forgotten that but i suddenly understood that it was linked to this landscape because there was a cliff there that fell that same year that disappeared in the water the same year as my my uncle died so that's the preface to that there are paths all over the place around here They crisscross up and over the big chalk skull-like sutures. They branch off, drawn by living feet in and out of the undergrowth. They find their way. The track begins where the grass has bent, summer after summer, under soles and hoofs and weight. The action is repeated until at last the blueberry stalks come to know it and to bend, writes Kerstin Aikman. And she writes a network of paths, veins, vessels of memory. I once learned that quotation by heart. It combined two of my passions, literature and paths. For at the end of the path, there was always something hiding. The path went there for a reason. Someone wanted something there and their wanting was an etching. Sometimes it was a little house, a fjord, a flowering tree or a sea hidden at the end of the track. Other times it pattered into nothing, but nothing was also something. You could stand and look or sit down, reflect or carry yourself to some new place. I have a fondness for routes few people take, but here at Bulbia the paths are well-trodden. Tourists scurry over the limestone like perpetually holding mice. My feet choose a path on the south side of the cliff, 
I clamber upwards. When I turn around and look down, I see other paths trickling into the countryside. Maybe they were first used by a marten, then by a fox, then a deer, then a badger, then a person, then another person, until at last they were bit deeply into the landscape. There are paths everywhere, up and down the coastline. A path is drawn in the sand, perhaps, and then a storm wipes it away, so the feet find another. Maybe the track is used mainly for practical purposes, and so it's paved. Then come the bicycles, the buggies, civilization. And civilization shores up the stories it tells about itself, while these feet-laid paths shift easily from year to year, until perhaps one day they're gone. One of my most secret paths along the coast is the one that led down towards the east side of Renköping Fjord, hit the beach and continued out onto a rickety jetty with a clear view of the lighthouse on the other side of the water. The lighthouse was flashing unbreakable in my memory with all its questions about direction in life. Another path I love is the one that goes from our little summer cabin, the secret place, onto the amber beach, past the old tar barrel and finally down into the water where Odesund Bridge quivers like a mirror, mirage in the distance. At the end of that track are geese, golden plover, curlews. There is amber in the east wind and the memory of bonfires with those I love. That's out there too. Yes, I prefer living tracks, ones that talk to the landscape this way. Vessels of memory, as Kerstin Eggman writes, to be led along to move with the slowly pulsing water and yet be still, like the plants in the brook, like the hornwort and the water lobelia. This eternal, fertile and dread-laden stream inside us, this fundamental question, do you want to remember or forget? Either way, something will grow, a path, a scar in the mind, a sorrow that you cannot grasp because it belongs to someone else, all that must be carried alone, all that cannot be told, Your story emerges in flashes or as ripples on the surface before diving down again. Your memories want you and do not want you. Your story is the one you share with others and the one you must live with in yourself and no matter what, you are led along. You are moved, transported, forced to wander down all these tracks into the light, into the dark, into nothing. Lovely. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And I think that, for me, I think the reason I flagged that is that it It captures something about the essence of this book, the travels that you're taking, 
the stories that you're telling and kind of the way that you are illuminating the journey that all of us are on through life in particular through life in relationship to whatever place we're in mm-hmm. it's so it's so f- weird and funny to me the way that we can take for granted the place that we spend all of our time <laughs> like every once in a while it occurs to me that i've spent like 90 8% or 99% of my existence, my adult life in, in this city, like not in California, but like in this city. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's strange to me. I never expected it. I sometimes can find myself yearning for like a slower pace and like to live out in the country. I have that aspect to me, but I've just had this urban existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's why I loved reading your book so much because I got to kind of get out of here. <laughs> Yeah, but urbanism is also a kind of nature. I mean, human beings are nature. That's, this is also why we are. If we go back to the landscape, we are able to read it after a while. So I spent some time in downtown a few years ago when I, the last time we talked, we, uh, I was in Los Angeles and I spent like a week living in a hotel in downtown. And what I found there was that that was also nature. It was a different kind of nature. There's a reason why you you compare big cities to jungles, because you can't see far and you have to be attentive all the time because there are dangers, luring cars, honking the horn. There are people who want their, your money. I mean, that is that is also nature, but it's just a kind of nature where you are. It's different kind of senses that you have to use to survive there. So when you go to Rocky Mountains or you go to, you know, some of the flats that you're the prairie you have, there will be a silence that you that will scare you probably. If you go back to the Minnesota prairies and for and, and you, you stand there at St. Peter and listen to the Minnesota River or the Mississippi, you'll go, this is so silent. There is nothing here. But that's just because you've turned down your brain. You've, your, your brain has adapted to living in Los Angeles. No doubt. So, so give yourself a couple of months and then you'll, it's like your brain will adapt to being in silence or being in nature and it will start making sense to you again. I think people escape too quickly because it's in the beginning, it's scary. One of the things I loved are kind of the recurring motifs of the landscape that you draw so well. And, you know, there's obviously the sea, lighthouses make a lot of appearances mm-hmm. in your book as you might expect for a book that is coastal uh in its place of uh of uh, interest and then churches also make a lot of appearances there are a lot of great old churches mm-hmm. in the danish countryside I want, there's one called i'm going to screw up the pronunciation steeb stabe 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, fairing there's one called fairing yeah, or, that's... Did I get that right? That's perfect. Okay. And then probably my favorite church passage uh, or like religious building passage in the book is the one where you're telling the story about your friend, uh, is it Nude Knud Sorensen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can, can you give listeners uh, just a thumbnail of that story? Because that's a fun one. My, my friend, uh, the Danish poet Knud Sørensen, who's, who was very, very old when I wrote this, uh, this chapter about him and who actually died um, two months ago, uh, way into his 90s. When he was a younger man and had kids, 
he and his wife went to see an abbey that they had knew this abbey it's called Burlum Abbey and they um, and they wanted to go see it they've seen it almost grew up next to it so one night they they went and there. actually I'm going to stop you just because I want listeners to to be along for the ride on this can you just give a quick visual description of what the abbey looks like and where it's situated in, yeah. on the land it's in the, on the northern part of the coastline it's on on it's almost placed on a hill so you can see it from far away it's from the 11th century and very it's a, it used to be a monastery and and you know these big tall white wall almost like screaming white black roof very a, a true power building you can just tell that the people who built that uh, was in power and and it has that i don't know if i mean uh, you're from the new world but buildings that old have a certain kind of energy around them it's like you can almost feel like all the bad stuff that went down there all the history that is embedded in that place and and um i'm, I'm looking down because my cat just wandered in sorry it's all right <laughs> it's not a, the first time that a cat no has i saw a cat too. in the background at your place too um <laughs> But um, it's a magic place, and it's a power station of uh, of strange stuff that has been going down in our history. And what happened was Aknu and his wife came there one night, and then it had disappeared. They couldn't find it. So wait, okay. So they, they went to go to visit, is it called Borulum? Borulum uh, Cluster, yeah. Borulum Abbey. Yeah. And it was gone. It was gone. And these two people knew where it was supposed to be they they could see the hill they could see everything like it was but the abbey was not there so knud who was a very practical man uh he was believed in science and everything he could not believe what he had seen many years passed he wrote a story about the night when berlum abbey disappeared turned out that a lot of people had experienced that uh, that he would get letters from people. Oh, I, I went there once and it was gone. It was just lifted up into the world. It was gone. And I've talked to Knud many times about what he thought happened because he's such, he was such a scientific and he was a land surveyor as well. And he, I mean, he didn't believe in the paranormal and yet it had happened. And I found that so intriguing. So, um, so I decided to write about that. Also because Knut was so old and because that whole idea of, of, of a building that old, of a place that old, of a story that old, that it can just disappear and where does it go, is so linked to the idea of death. I mean, how can somebody who has lived that long and have all these stories and have all that in them, where do they go? Where do they disappear to? And where does Berlum Appy disappear to? So there are all kinds of fun theories about uh, Berlum Abbey. Some people, of course, think that, that Knut made it up because he was a, an amazing storyteller. I don't. I mean, there are all kinds of fun theories about parallel universes or places being so powerful that they can decide to disintegrate themselves when they want to. You know, that whole mythology about uh, places at all. I mean, imagine if you looked out at the... At the the Statue of Liberty, and she was poof <laughs> because right. she was she had become so enigmatic that she could actually do that, just walk out of the picture. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, you know, yeah. I, this is the thing about this stuff is that yeah, I, I love 
the fact that you, who seemed like a rational, honest broker and, and canoed, I mean, this guy, you, a land surveyor, a poet, I'm just, I, I, I'm totally just picturing him. I have no visual frame of reference, but he just seems like such a solid citizen in the Completely way that you depict solid. him. I cannot imagine that this guy's bullshitting. And Okay, so he wasn't the Abbey, bullshitting, but what the you Abbey must disappeared. It disappeared, but what you must remember, he might not believe in the paranormal, and he didn't, but he believed in the good story, and that's where I mean, he loved a good story, and that was a good story. So perhaps that's what happened. <laughs> it yeah. was a good story that happened. <laughs> you know. I think it disappeared. I think it's uh, I it think, has I mean, the, especially since it's corroborated. There are other people who had the same experience. Yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, I mean, his his story actually goes on to explain how he he left his car to walk up the hill to see if he could what was why it was gone, and he had a moment there of of sort of a time lapse where he felt like he was in the 14th century, where there was a person who came towards him in clothes that was not from his own time. Was and he then on he, mushrooms? Was, was he, no, was he... He, was like, he was like the most <laughs> solid dude you could ever meet. But as I said, he loved a good story, so who knows? And now he's dead, which is, um, he died very old of age. He just disappeared himself two months ago. And I went to his funeral and his son uh, came over to me and he said, so, so now dad has actually disappeared himself, he said. And it's like the perfect uh, ending uh, to that. That was the cat. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. What's your cat's name? Potluck. Padlock? Potluck. Like you, when, you, um, when you throw a potluck in the United States. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Potluck. I like that. Potluck. I, ad I adopted it with Jared Kobik, actually. Oh, you did? Yeah, back okay. back way back when in in Denmark when we were at a residency together, the cat oh. popped up at the residency. Sorry. So best time of year for people who are like, I'm. That's it. I'm packing my bags. I'm going to the North Sea coast. Summer. It's got to be the solstice, right? That's the time mm -hmm. when the place is like, like you say, it's like a magical fairy tale land, and people are burning. What do you burn? A, a uh, you burn something in effigy? A woman, like on the, a female doll in midsummer. Why is that? Oh, I, I mean, you ask me, it's a crazy thing. Uh, we have bonfires, and that's old, old tradition in, uh, in Scandinavia around solstice that we do that. It's to burn away evil. It's like a, cl a cleansing ritual and to celebrate light. And um, sometime, I think maybe in the old days, they have had offerings on these uh, stakes. But the idea of, of, of burning a witch... Uh, cups came in the 1920s. It's like a fairly modern thing, which makes it even more uh, idiotic that somebody suddenly thought it would be fun to put a witch on there because we had the witch effigies in, in the 16th century, like you also did uh, in the United States. And, um, and it's a tradition that people have just, oh, we've always done that, but we haven't. And these days, of course, we are a lot of women in particular who think it's, it's a horrific thing to do. I mean, and uh, to be fair, when I was a kid, they would also burn trolls, which is male witches. Uh, so they, I mean, it depended on who built the, the doll, whether it was a, a female doll or a man. But the point was that it was 
it was um, human beings. It, it was supposed to look like human beings. Okay. But that's yeah. like, I mean, all of that stuff aside, like a nice big bonfire, the sun is out until midnight or close to it. People are outside. I imagine it's festive. The coast and the, the landscape is alive. That's the time of year that you would recommend. for, or, or maybe you think they should come in the dead of winter to really get into the heart of the experience. Like, what do you recommend? <laughs> the witches? Uh, no, just for visitors. Oh, visitors. I mean, if, if you want to fall in love with this coastline, you should probably come in the summer. Uh, just to see uh, how the light is amazing. I mean, it's there are fjords just behind the the dunes, so it's like the light is being mirrored by so much water. So the light is so high, and it's light around the day, and you can sleep on the beach, and you can hike there. And it, so, if you want to fall in love, come when it's uh, kind. <laughs> come when it's kind to you. And then for I mean, we have a lot of tourists who, who stick around all year long because they have grown to love when it's rough as well and who also want to experience the storms. Because when the hurricanes come in, that is quite an experience in itself because it's like it's screaming down in your face. It's, um, it's like a roar and you feel so little and tiny and minuscule and... It's like the galaxies are screaming at you. So that is a, a different kind of... <laughs> it's a of, lovely experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, but also, I mean, I remember it from when I was a child that that is one of the reasons why I love this landscape is, of course, that it is so much stronger than me. I, and and it, it's, I, I like that it's there and it's um, so big... And I'm part of it, but I'm not bigger than that. I, I often get a little, if I'm in very picturesque and very cute and tiny uh, landscapes where everything, there are flowers everywhere. And it's just so, I mean, I sometimes, I sometimes really long for that storm to remind us that we are on a small globe in an expansive universe that is so big that we can't fathom it. And these forces that we are part of are just so incredibly much bigger than we are. And this coastline reminds me, like two or three times a year when a hurricane comes, it's like, okay, I'm a human being on a little planet in the outskirt of the Milky Way. And I didn't make up this planet. I'm a citizen on it. I'm a being on it. So, uh, I mean, that that's... Um, I think that's probably healthy to remind, be reminded of now and then. It's a good note to end on, but I have to actually do two more things uh, before we officially end. First of all, as a Californian, transplanted Californian, but a Californian of more than 20 years now, I have to salute the fact that there, there are Danish surfers. Uh, you, you write a section of the book uh, it's a it's a place called is it called Thai again the pronunciation yeah that's a that's a difficult one it's called Tu in Danish Tu it's, it's like a Chu it's like Gesundheit Tu Tu okay tu. see it's but it's spelled T H Y so yeah you that's know. I mean that's both yeah we have a, a stretch of water here called Cold Hawaii where is a very big surfer community Cold Hawaii uh, Cold Hawaii is the okay. stretch of water it's a, a complete. Um, Fairly new culture to this coastline. 
German, American, Canadian, you name it, surfers go there. Uh, it's it's a very interesting culture. They figured out around 1980 that the waves were particularly good on the specific stretch of the beach. And, um, and they started settling there. And now they master the waves all the way down. So the cold Hawaii culture, the surfer culture has is all the way up and down this coastline now. And um, it's interesting because it's an international culture and uh, it's better than tourism because it's, I mean, they don't hurt the landscape. They are, they're part of it. They have, um, they're interested in, in, in keeping the place good. And, right. um, and also they live there all year, which means that they bring kids to school. They have the local communities thrive and, and grow. Um, and they come from all over the world and they have great educations quite often they're educated mm. or entrepreneurs uh, so that's an interesting place well for people listening if you go in the in the in the height of summer you can pack your surfboard and go oh, they surfing surf in, in the cold winter Hawaii. too they, they surf do. in the winter too yeah yeah and then they have saunas on the beach so you, and, i mean they surf all year round oh my god know. <laughs> I cannot imagine what it must be like in well, that water. Well, they have these full body suits and, you know, they do all kinds of things too yeah. to deal with the cold. Yeah. So last thing, I always ask my guests if they are working on anything new. It is fine if you are not, but is there another book in the works from Door to Norse right now? I am working on something and it is the novel that I was actually supposed to write when I started writing uh, A Line in the Well. And it's great being back in fiction. I mean, imagine all the things you can do in fiction that you can't do in autofiction. It's like, it's a, so I'm writing on a novel, yes. Any, any hints about what it's a, about or what it entails? Nope. <laughs> Fair secret. enough. Yeah. The, bo- the books you talk about never get written. I think, I, listen, I, I respect <laughs> that superstition. I think that it's a... It's a good strategy. And also, especially if it's earlier in the project or even if it's not, these things are so fluid, they can change. So yeah, and they you start do. talking about it and then all of a sudden, you know, a year or two later, somebody picks it up and they're like, this isn't anything like she described. No, what was she talking about? That's a, <laughs> That must be another book. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, loved your book, A Line in the World, Thank you. A Year on the North Sea Coast. Just a pleasure to read and fun for me to get to travel with you. And fun to see you and to talk to you again. This was a great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. And I will now let you, uh, what is it? France and Morocco are about to play in the World Cup. So, you you know, we need to go watch this uh, match and see what happens. But really appreciate it. Good evening to you in Denmark. And uh, again, thank you for your time. Thank you. Okay, you guys, there we have it. That was Door to Norse. Her new book is called A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea Coast. It is available now in North America from Grey Wolf Press, translated by Caroline Waite. You can find Dorda Norris on the internet at dordanors.dk. You can track her down on social media too. She's on Twitter at Dorda Norris. She's also on Instagram. I like her Instagram. She posts these uh, lovely pictures from the North Sea Coast from Denmark. You can check it out. Again, the book is called A Line in the World, out there now from Grey Wolf. Go get your copy right away. It's a beautiful book. The Other People podcast 
is offered freely. I make this show available, the entire archive, for free. I'm counting on listeners to show their support. Tip your server for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Sign up for my email newsletter once a week. That's it. Over at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. It's free. Uh, It goes out once a week. You can keep up with the show. I will share some things that I've been reading and finding interesting or amusing or both. My novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. If you want to read Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, uh, I recommend it. Sign up for the, uh, or subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. It's free. Subscribe to the Other People TikTok. It's free. Follow. Subscribe. You know what I'm doing. You know what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm saying. YouTube, TikTok, all that stuff. It's out there. Follow the show on Twitter at OtherPPL. Follow the show on Instagram at, at OtherPPL.podcast. And write to me and let me know what you think. The email address is letters at OtherPPL.com. This show, just so you know, has its own official app. Did you know that? The Other People Show has its own official app. It's free. It's available wherever apps are available. It's a good app. It's a great way to listen. You get it on your phone. New episodes automatically upload to the app. It just happens. There it is. So go get the Other People with Brad Listy app and uh, enjoy that. Again, it's free. And I think that's it. I'm not entirely sure who next week's guest is going to be. I think it's going to be Kashana Cauley. And I'm very excited about that one. But TBD, I still have to record it. So trying to sort it all out. But stay tuned. I've got a lot of good episodes, a lot of good conversations lined up here in the early goings in 2023. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you're doing all right. Hope you survived the holidays okay. I am back in action and we'll be here every wednesday with a new episode sometimes on sundays too and i might have some other good new stuff in the works so stay tuned and i'll talk to you soon all right i want to go to denmark (laughs) 